Well, last week, on Easter Sunday, we started this series called The Kingdom. And we compared uh, the inauguration of two kings. The first one was King George IV. By the way, just a little tidbit of information. You know King George Highway that we have here in the Lower Mainland? It's, I thought it may have been named after him. It's actually named after King George VI. So his grandpa, who came to visit uh, in Surrey, in that area, and they, they named a big highway after him. But just so you know that, uh, next time if you're driving with family or friends, you can say where you know it's from. Just for you guys to know that. You don't seem that impressed, but I was really impressed. That's really cool. Um, but it was King George IV that we talked about, and the inauguration of King George IV um, in 1821 cost $1.2 billion, or sorry, 1.2 billion British pounds um, by today's standards uh, for a guy who only lived nine years. Passed away in 1830, but uh, his coronation was something for the ages. And we compared his coronation with another person by the name of Jesus Christ, who factually and historically was flogged, who had a crown of thorns twisted on his head and died on a cross. If you go to Windsor, uh, which is about an hour or two east of, uh, sorry, west of London today, you can actually go visit the royal vault and actually go see where King George IV is laid to rest. But there is no place where we can actually go and visit a grave of Jesus. Even though he died um, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Israel, they know that he's not there today. We don't visit a grave to remember Jesus because he's alive. And with Jesus' death and resurrection, he has ushered in a whole new kingdom. Hence our series, The Kingdom. You see, the Bible makes it very, very clear that with everything about Jesus' death and resurrection... There was a one-time event, but it was also the ushering in of a whole new way of life. So when we celebrate Easter, it's an event, yes. When we celebrate Good Friday, yes, it's an event. But what it did is it ushered in this whole new way of life called the kingdom, that Jesus is alive today, and with it he brought his kingdom. June 6, 1998 marks an event in history. Uh, that's when Michelle and I got married up in the beautiful town of Houston, British Columbia. How many of you have been up to Houston? Anybody? We've got a few. Yes, you know, big smile on your face, right? It's such a beautiful place. And June 6, 1998 was a day for the ages. It didn't cost quite $1.2 billion for the actual event. But we were up there. The ceremony was beautiful. And then we've got some white tents brought in from like eight hours away so that we could have this beautiful reception in the middle of town. Uh, Michelle's family's musical. They provided all the music. We had dancing. Her aunt catered the whole thing. Again, it was, if you would have been there, some of you were. My mom was there. She's here. It was, it was an amazing time. It was great. Um, and it was so fun, I still remember Michelle crying, leaving the reception. <laughs> she was like, this is so good, and now i got to leave my friends. It was so sad. But we had a great time. But that one-time event wasn't just a one-time event that was left and done. It was an event that ushered in a new way of life. Because on June 6th this year, in a, in a little bit, six weeks or so, we will celebrate now 24 years. Gentlemen, do you notice how quickly I roll these dates off my tongue so well? Um, but 24 years, and that's 24 years of being together, of, of living life together. We have two dogs now, three in total. We've got four kids, um, untold amount of little rodents and fish and all this kind of stuff. But we've built a life together. June 6th marks an event which ushered in a whole new life Jesus' death and resurrection is an event that has ushered in a whole new way of life, and it's called the kingdom. 
Listen to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 1. It says, Jesus came into Galilee, this is in northern Israel, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. In other words, turn from your sin and believe in the gospel. You see that? The kingdom of God is at hand. So, it's good to ask ourselves, well, what is the kingdom of God? It's a number of different things. Um, Nate mentioned our dessert night series. We had about 15, 16 people this past Wednesday, and that was one of the topics we talked about. What is the kingdom? What do we think about when we talk about the kingdom of God, and what does it mean for us? We don't have kings that rule over us today, nor do we live in a kingdom. So what does this mean way back when? Well, maybe when we think about the kingdom of God, something political comes to mind. Oh, if we just had more of a political party that was in line with Jesus, then our nation would be better, whatever that looks like. Maybe we think about something about social justice. Maybe it's uh, more housing for the homeless or addiction recovery or something else to help people in their needs. Or maybe the kingdom is about something future-related. It's not something we have now, but it's something that we get to enjoy later. So if we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and we're going to spend the next six weeks doing so, it's good to understand what we're talking about as far as uh, some sort of definition or understanding what is this kingdom of God, what is this ushering in of a new way of life. Well, Tim Mackey, uh, founder of the Bible Project, uh, he, he says it this way, and I love his definition of the kingdom of God. He says this, he says, the kingdom of God is how God is taking back his world. The kingdom of God is how God is taking back his world. Now, some of you here may or may not be familiar with uh, Japanese pottery. And in Japanese pottery, I found out that there's a technique that has been around for about 500 years, and it's called kintsugi. Kintsugi. Anybody familiar with kintsugi? Do you want to say it for a minute? Kintsugi. It's just kind of, it's kind of fun to say. Kintsugi is the art of taking broken pottery and restoring it, putting it back together to make it actually not only more useful, but even perhaps more beautiful than it was before. So what we do in our day, if, if we break something, we either, well, we chuck it out. If it's got some value to it, you do what we do in our house, and that is we pull out the crazy glue. We've got gobs of crazy glue in our house so that we can put it in and put it back together and make it look like nothing, nothing ever broke. Michelle's got this serving bowl from her great-great-grandma that we, she insists that we use in our house, and so I just keep the crazy glue close because if this thing ever falls, man, I don't want to tell Michelle I just want to crazy glue this thing so that she'll never see that it's broken. Not that I've broken it yet, Michelle, so just so you know. Um, but kintsugi is actually taking broken pottery and not actually applying crazy glue to it, but it's applying a glue of a different color, as you can see, and actually understanding that it's not just restored to its original use, but it's beautiful. The kingdom of God is God taking back his world, of taking something that could have been or was broken and could have been tossed, but instead putting it back together to bring it to not only a new usefulness, but something actually more beautiful than it was in the original. So how does this take place? How does Kintsugi take place on a macro scale? And how is God doing this today? Well, in order to understand how he's doing it today, we have to understand a little bit through the Bible of how this has actually taken place and how we even got to our place where we are now. Some of what I want to go through is, is inspired by 
the guy who talked about Tim Mackey. If you've never checked out the Bible Project, by the way, I would encourage you to. Um, it is very, very, very well done. It's family-friendly, and there's lots of just visual interpretations of common things that, that maybe we know or, or want to know, uh, simple gospel things in there in a very beautiful way. So anyway, check out Bible Project. They didn't pay me to say that, by the way, but I just think you should anyway. But let's go through um, this. Some of this is inspired by Tim Mackey um, a little bit as we look through the Bible. So first of all, we're going to go back way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation account. We have in seven different, sorry, six different days that God creates something. Whether it be light or he separates land from darkness, he creates the animals. Um, and eventually, he creates mankind. And what does he say after all of these? It is good. You see, there is a proper order of things in Genesis chapter 1. God is God. He's creator, and he's got a full authority. And then he creates things which are under his authority. There is a right way to do things. And in all of this creation, there is a proper order. And I think that's partially why God says it is good. Then we move into chapter 2. And we meet two people by the name of Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve reign over creation, and what God does is he actually extends his authority to Adam and Eve. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 128, beginning of chapter 2. He says this, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Have babies. Go and fill this earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So don't miss this. God creates in Genesis chapter 1. Everything is as it should be. And then he gives his authority to Adam and Eve who didn't have authority before. Now he gives it to them so that they can now rule over the things that God has created. Again, we have a proper order of things. But then there is a distinct and destructive turn in Genesis chapter 3. Suddenly, suddenly, we go to a place where we want to reign over ourselves. We want to push God out of the way, and we want to take the authority that God has first of all established and then given. You see, we went from, in Genesis 3, from desiring to be channels of God's blessing to the world around us, to actually being God's ourselves. And understand just the huge pivot this is in Scripture. We're only three chapters into the Bible, and there's this massive pivot where we want to, we go from being channels of God's blessing to actually desiring to be little gods ourselves, to be people in control and to be the people with authority. As pastor and author Mark Sayers says so well, he says this, he says, this is the kingdom of this world or this age. We want the kingdom without the king. In other words, we want all the benefits of what the king provides in his kingdom, but we don't want to be under the authority or the reign of a king who has established it. Doesn't that kind of speak to our world today? In 1952, author William uh, Golding wrote a novel that would go on to win a Nobel Prize and be declared by Time magazine, magazine to be one of the best 100 books of all time. Lord of the Flies. Perhaps you've read it. The gist of the book is that a group of boys find themselves on a deserted island and they intend, attempt to govern themselves without any greater or external authority. There's no one else around. It's just them. And they've got to create the structure 
And in essence, they want to enjoy everything that's on the island, but they don't want anyone to rule over them. And once someone does, and they decide and choose, and there's all this friction, that's where things start going like to crazy pot in Lord of the Flies. But the, the gist of that, again, is that we want to govern ourselves without this external authority. Moving on through the Bible. First of all, God established authority. Uh, he's created. He gives it to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve turn on him. We want the authority ourselves. We go to Genesis 12 now. And God desires to create this nation called Israel for a way for him to put the world back together because he sees it's broken. Genesis 12 tells us that God meets a man named Abram, later Abraham, and says this in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. It sounds good. It sounds like it's going to work. God is putting his, uh, his people in order so that the proper order of things is going to happen again. There's going to be a godly authority and a godly leadership, and it's going to happen through his nation called Israel. Well, does that happen and we live happily ever after? No. See, for, it was good for all of a short time until the nation started to grow to the thousands and then the hundreds of thousands. And God is their king, but suddenly, as the nation of Israel starts looking around at neighboring nations, they get this huge case of king envy. They go, well, they've got a human as a king, and they've got a human as a king, and they've got a human as a king. Why is God our king? We can't see him and touch him and, and feel him like you can with other kings. And so they demand from God, we want a human being as a king. And God is grieved by this, but he says, fine. He says, I will give you a king. And Israel has their first human as king, a guy by the name of Saul. And this starts a downward spiral where humanity brings disaster on itself. Listen to this in 2 Kings this is just an example, the tip of the iceberg as far as the chaos and destruction that happens in Israel because they wanted their own king and they wanted a human as their own authority. There's one king by the name of Manasseh. And it says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. I think that's part of the problem right there, isn't it? <laughs> 12-year-old kings probably is a bit of an oxymoron. But Manasseh is 12 years old when he became king probably had lots of playstations and junk food and everything under his order. Um, but it says here, he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. And his mother's name was um, his Hephzibah, in case you wanted to know. And it says this in verse 2, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this happens time and time again, friends. It says this next king is born and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord just like his father. And then the next person is born, he did evil. And, and it goes through generations like that until all of a sudden, once in a while, it says so-and-so was born and he did not follow the footsteps of his father, but rather followed the ways of God. And suddenly there's this, like, this breath of fresh air because proper order is restored to things only to have the next king come along and do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we're in 2 Kings, and I'm like 15 minutes in. You're like, is this like a three-hour sermon, Jeff, today? Because we're going through the whole Bible. Let me jump. Maybe some of you are like, thankfully, jump to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, 
It doesn't feel like just something's got to give. This path of destruction has got to change. Where does the kingdom begin? Listen to Luke 1. An angel named Gabriel visits Mary and says this. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Notice there's someone new in authority here now. And it says, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. It's crucial, listen to this, his kingdom will never end. This is a, the kingdom of God is established and it will never end. And I love this because there's not too long of a time, just a few chapters later where it says Jesus enters a synagogue and with all these elders who know a lot of things about the law, the Torah, Jesus enters in there, he stands up and grabs this scroll called the Isaiah scroll. It's kind of like our scriptures today, but they didn't have the Bible then. They had scrolls. He opens it up and he says, I am the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happened once every seven years in the Old Testament when every debt was wiped away. If you owed money, you had a mortgage, you had a loan to a friend, by the seventh year, it was gone. You started all over again. I don't know if people wised up and thought, I'm going to get a loan in the sixth year so that in the seventh year it's wiped out. I never think that way. Don't worry about it. Um, But the year of Jubilee is a sign of freedom and it's a sign of not holding on to the destruction and, and the evil and all that brokenness, but it's something new. And Jesus says, I am the year of Jubilee. It has come because I've come to set people free. I've come to heal and I've come to tell them there's hope in me. See, the entire story of Scripture is God putting together a broken world. It's kintsugi, but on a macro scale. The kingdom of God is how God is taking back his world. And we now, in the year 2022, are living in this. The kingdom of God, which has come, which has not yet fully come, but yet we are in it. Jesus gave a prayer to his followers when they said, Jesus, there's so many ways to pray in this world today. How should we pray? And Jesus offers a prayer. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. And in there, he says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what are the the next words? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Boom. It's right there. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth in this time in our day and age just as it is in heaven. In other words, God, we think about Genesis 1. We think about a time of proper order when you reigned and you were a good king. God, may that time, may that proper order of things happen once again here on earth when we are no longer our own authority, when we no longer say goodbye to you, when we no longer want just the things of the kingdom, but we refuse a king. May your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is God's heart for us. To put our broken world back together and make it more beautiful than it was. In our country, in Langley, in Willoughby, in in Surrey, wherever we live, and in our neighborhoods. And here's the beautiful thing, is that we get to be participants in the ushering in of the kingdom of God. We are not just observers of the ushering in. Isn't that great? Think about this, that God chooses to use us, 
not to just say, stand back, guys. I want you to see what, watch this unfold before your eyes. But he says, you want to see the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven? You're all going to be part of this. You who love me and follow me, we get to be the kingdom of God tangibly to people around us. And how is this going to happen? I think part of Jesus' master plan was to build up and encourage his followers and send them out to live in their neighborhoods and live the gospel, live hope, live a newness and restoration to the people around them who desperately need it. We see this in history, how Christians rose up and were the kingdom of God tangibly in the world around them. There were cities in the Roman Empire uh, a couple hundred years after the death of Jesus, and they were horrific places to live. There's a historian, his name is Rodney Stark, and he specifically looks at the city of Antioch, a city where Christianity thrived, and he says that Antioch was a city filled with misery, danger, fear, despair, and hatred. It's like worse than Edmonton. Can you imagine like that? It would be like, who would want to live there? Chris is shaking his head right now. I know it. Um, but can you imagine living in this? Um, some of the stats that we, we understand from this sociologically is that most families lived there in filthy homes. They had no sort of sanitation, no running water, obviously no electricity or anything like that. Um, they lived in filthy conditions. Approximately 50% of the children died young. They never graduated. They never had school. They never, they passed away. They died from uh, either a pandemic or different diseases that are very curable today. Different ethnicities constantly clashed in Antioch. And where mob violence and crime flourished, a city also experienced cataclysmic disasters like earthquakes and other things. And yet in these conditions... Like I said, Christianity thrived here. People gathered in the name of Jesus, worshipped him, and lived in their neighborhoods and gave hope to people in a tangible way. Listen to this. Rodney Stark says this. He says, To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Isn't that beautiful? A place where there is complete brokenness, there's pieces that are just shattered. And Christians, in the name of Jesus, start to begin to put them together and bond them and make them beautiful. Loving the poor and hurting in cities... Uh, was how God the King was taking back his world. It's kind of like Kintsugi. You see how God, like a potter, is gathering up the broken pieces of his world. Throughout history, this has been the theme of Christians. Throughout history, Christians are following Jesus today in a broken world who are experiencing brokenness themselves and yet sharing the hope of Jesus in so many different ways. Countless agencies have been started over the years by people who love Jesus and see a tangible need in our world. Organizations today like World Vision, Compassion, and Samaritan's Purse have, been, have begun by Christians, who, people who love Jesus, to bring food and hope to poverty-stricken people around the world. Organizations like the Red Cross 
and an agency in our own denomination of our um, Mennonite brethren called the Mennonite Central Committee was started by Christians wanting to bring food, shelter, water, safety, and education to people around the world in deep need. Our church partners with a ministry called the Wellspring Foundation. The Wellspring Foundation began by Jesus followers wanting to help partner in the field of education in the decimated country years ago of Rwanda, who is now still experiencing healing in their country. And though Wellspring isn't necessarily a Christian organization where they go and share Jesus outright in classrooms, the theme of the gospel and the hope of Jesus is interspersed and interwoven throughout all that they do. And it's so cool that the Wellspring Foundation now has a seat at the table of the Rwandan government in creating curriculum for the students there. Two weeks ago, we prayed for our very own Tess Mawson on this stage. Tess Mawson is a part of a ministry called GAIN. Tess is in Benin, uh, Africa, as we speak today, digging wells to bring water to villages and also sharing the love and hope of Jesus through showing the Jesus film to people. Not only are they getting water brought closer to their village so they don't have to walk miles, but they get to watch this video and understand how this God in heaven who created things loves them. Some in our church are a part of a ministry or have been a part of a ministry called Drime, which I was a part of. I was in these dramas, and I was not very good, but it was really fun. Um, Michelle was a part of it, too, and for years we would go down to the streets of Vancouver, which still happens today. There's still groups going down where the gospel message is shared through dramas, and then people engage in conversation, not to win arguments and not to make people feel silly or to inundate them with information, but rather to talk about the hope that Jesus brings in our world today going around our neighborhoods, being the kingdom of God, being established here on earth. Drime has grown now with this same um, rhythm, the same kind of things going on. I think it's in about two dozen countries around the world today. In about six weeks, we're going to have a Sunday where we focus on families who are part of our Yorkson community, but they're not here. They're living in places like Malawi and Indonesia so that they can have all kinds of bring all kinds of needs uh, to meet in the countries that they live in and to share, again, the love of Jesus there as well. This, this is the ushering in of the kingdom of God. It's something that we get to be a part of today and not simply watch. We get to be a part of it as we get to encourage and see people around the world go to their neighborhoods. And it's something that we get to experience and be a part of today as we go into our neighborhoods, as we share the love of Jesus Christ in very tangible ways. The kingdom of God is God taking back his world. It's taking something broken and making it beautiful once again. And I think here's a question for us that we need to think about as we think about all of this. Is as we make it personal, let me ask this question. What needs to be put back together in us this morning? Where are we experiencing brokenness? And where, if we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, that it's not just out there somewhere, but that it actually begins in us. Where is there brokenness that is not our fault? Where we're experiencing sickness, where we're victims of something that has happened to us or is happening to us? Where do we need the healing of Jesus to put us back together? Or maybe where is the brokenness that, we, that is sin in our lives, that we know that we are involved in destructive behaviors that are not honoring to God as king, 
but we need to be put back together. And so before we pray it in our communities, before we pray it in our neighborhoods, and our cities, we first need to pray this ourselves. God, where do you want to put us back together? Where in us does the kingdom of heaven need to happen in the kingdom or in the, in, on earth? And so let's pray together for a moment. I want to give us some time to think about all of these things. And then Ashlyn and James and Brett are going to lead us in worship. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to die on a cross, that he would breathe once again in the tomb and that he would be raised to life. And thank you, Jesus, that all of that, while it took place, has ushered in this whole new way of life called the kingdom of God, that we live in it today. And Lord, we pray for it, we seek it, and we want to live it out in our world And perhaps it's in ways that we uh, travel across the world to live in communities and to bring hope in in Jesus' name and other things. And maybe it's to be planted in our very own community, in our neighborhood. But God, you've called us to be participants in bringing a broken world back together. And God, as we think about this, would you put people on our heart that we can minister to in the name of Jesus? And Lord, would you help us to think about ourselves? to understand in new ways that we are broken people, that we need your healing in our lives, Lord. We desperately need you. So would you break down the walls of pride in us? Would you break down maybe a sense of us having it all together and understand that we need you, God. We need you for life. We love you. Thank you that you have brought and ushered in the kingdom of God to this earth and that you are doing this even now. So teach us, God, what it means to follow you. Teach us what it means to live in this and to be a blessing to the world around us. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together?